Lamentations. Uh, first of all, quick question. Uh, where would Lamentations fall under the books that we don't really read? <laughs> uh, and which other ones would fall on there with that? Uh, uh, it immediately comes to mind is, is uh, Leviticus or perhaps uh, the beginning of First Chronicles, uh, some of the minor prophets, Second and Third John. I mean, that are just so short, and you you wonder, well, why is it there? Well, you know, we know why. What's that? It's got to be near the end because it was you know, Babylon, Babylon took over Jerusalem in about 586 or something. So yeah, it's got to be near near the end of the Old Testament chronologically. Right. So we were looking at that. Matter of fact, that's we'll, we'll get to there in a few minutes. Uh, there's some interesting little tidbits, and this is going to be an introduction uh, tonight to the book because there's a lot of things that that I, I find compelling about it. Um, you know, we we have these books that you know we wonder, well, why on earth did you write these down for us, Lord? And, but they are important. Leviticus, as tedious as it might be, um, I actually enjoyed it, but some people find it tedious, uh, is very important. Tells us how we should live and 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 how we should uh, how we should uh, reach out to God, how we should reach out to our neighbors. Um, it's it's just a critical and important book for us to read. Um, first Chronicles, the first part of it, with the genealogies. Um, I refer to them occasionally, only when I try to figure out who on earth is this person somewhere later on in the in the book. Uh, but Lamentations is a difficult one for a couple of reasons. Well, first of all, I won't say commemorate. Uh, it's a series of five poems uh, by one author or many. Could be one author, could be five authors. No one knows. The Septuagint adds a line to it saying that it was Jeremiah. But, uh, and it's, that would tell you that at least by the time of the Septuagint, uh, that uh, most uh, Jews felt that Jeremiah wrote these. There's a few things that point to, to where it might not be his authorship. Uh, it's of no importance uh, as to who, who actually penned these, whether it was one or, or a dozen. One or five. There's only five poems. They're difficult to write. Um, one through four are acrostics, alphabetic acrostics. Uh, does anyone know what that is? Well, and except this is list the alphabet, right. and the first verse begins with the first letter, right. second verse with the second letter, third verse with the third letter. How many letters are there in the Hebrew alphabet? Twenty-two, and I don't know if that includes vowels because they they really don't they they don't use vowels very often. Maybe 
for the uh, beginning of words. In, Lament in the Septuagint, as I said, uh, it assigns the authorship to Jer Jeremiah when it, uh, when it explicitly identifies him by saying, uh, and, then, and it came to pass after Israel had taken, been taken away into captivity and Jerusalem had been laid waste, that Jeremiah sat weeping and lamenting this, these lamentations over Jerusalem and said, and then the first lament, book of Lamentations. So the author is not known. The Hebrew does not have those. Um, my trans the translations I have don't assign an author to it, so we'll consider it as anonymous for now. What else do we know about the book? Anything? Anyone? As I said, there's five poems, songs, if you like. Um, they're not cheerful. Has anyone watched or seen pictures of the uh, of the destruction that's going on, say, in, in Ukraine? Mariupol, for instance. What do you see when you when you see those pictures? Rubble. What's that? Rubble. Rubble. Literally, rubble, dust, and rubble, and dead bodies. What did you what What is war like? When it's done and you're on the losing side, how do you feel? Devastated. Devastated. Keith? I find Jeremiah and <clears throat> Lamentations, they're laments, you know, mm -hmm. and it's like crying all the way through. So to me, it's a boring book. <laughs> I don't like to hear that. Ah. And I don't think anybody loves to hear. No one problems. likes to hear that. Yes. But sometimes it's good to hear it. Otherwise, why would the Spirit have put it here for us? Now, this doesn't just pop up. The Spirit inspired this, and the Spirit inspired it's being added to the, to, uh, the canon. There's a reason for that. Maybe to let us know that the world is not perfect. It's a good one. The world is not perfect. You know, I think when you read the book of Psalms, you think of Psalms as joyful, jubilant, songs of praise and worship. But then there's so many lament psalms. And some of them are like, you shouldn't be saying that. And you shouldn't be saying that to God, at least, you know. And, but it's God's way of saying it's okay to be real and honest and to pour your heart out. And this is raw, real humanity. This is not fake, superficial religion. This is life as it is. And it's God's way of helping us to identify the Bible story with our story, I think. 
I mean, his understanding of our painful emotions and permission to cry. And I think to me, there's a good time to cry when you've been extremely idolatrous and your land is destroyed because of your own fault. I mean, that's, that's a legitimate time to cry. Let's look a moment and, and uh, along that line um, in the book of Jeremiah. What were the people being fed from their prophets and the priests and their kings and rulers? What they were being fed? What was the, the message that they were getting concerning uh, God's wrath that might happen to them? Lies, lies upon lies upon lies. And the people, for the most part, bought those lies. Jeremiah, uh, the last of the, I think he's the last of the, of the uh, well, he was the last of the uh, pre-exile prophets, is telling them that don't listen to them. God has already told me if you don't change, I'm going to bring my servant, Nebuchadnezzar. Sounds odd to call Nebuchadnezzar God's servant, but Jeremiah calls him God's servant. He's going to come and destroy the city and everything with it. Now, if I were if I were a Jew, normal Jew, sitting there, and I'm and I look out and uh, and I've got a history, which is that this city and this temple, this is God's city, and that temple is God's house, and you're telling me God is going to destroy it. And what did Jeremiah keep telling us? Yep, he will. Um, it's said that when they rebuilt Jerusalem after the exile, they had to move the walls in because the Babylonians had done such an a, uh, efficient and, and thorough job of destroying it, that it was impossible to put the walls back where they were. It was total rubble. There was no standing wall. So we need to, I think, look back a little bit to see, to understand this as to why all this is happening by going through the history that led up to this. Uh, it's probably the most, it, it is considered as the most horrendous event in Jewish history. Uh, first of all, uh, it is, there's a day of fasting for the Jews, and let me see if I can find my, the name of it. Um, a day of fasting, which is called Tish Bav, I guess. That's my guess of its pronunciation. Uh, and 
it mourns, it's a day of fasting, and it's mourning two things. The first one, it started out on the seventh day of, I think, it, of the uh, fifth month, mourning the destruction of the first temple. And then 600 years later, the Romans decided to do the same thing to Herod's temple, and it so, so happened that it was on the ninth day of the same month that the temple was the first temple was destroyed. So they moved this fast to onto that onto the ninth day of of the uh, of the month, uh, and they have the fast day of Tishba uh, Bav. That's its pronunciation, and it's a day of mourning and fasting for the Jews. They have not forgotten it. Part of this mourning and fasting is the reading aloud of the Book of Lamentations. And so they would gather and they would read aloud the Lamentations. Uh, it's uh, the reason for it, and I'll get... Uh, reading from, and this is uh, some uh, Jewish take on it, uh, also called Ikchah, or Ikchah, I'm not very good with Hebrew. Uh, the Book of Lamentations uh, is an intricate set of dirges and descriptions of Jerusalem under siege and the destruction of the first temple. The elegy bewails Jerusalem once teeming with life and now sitting abandoned and alone like a solitary widow. It captures the horror of the siege, children pleading for water and bread in vain, cannibalism on the part of the hunger-maddened mothers. Those who died by the sword were better off than those who perished by hunger. Nobles hanged, women raped, priests defiled. The prophet literally blame, blame, basically uh, blames Jewish immorality and idolatry for the tragedy, yet there is a fascinating outburst in Lamentations 3 in which the believer, as it were, accuses God of being the enemy. Like a lion lying in ambush to destroy his victim, the prophet comes close to losing his faith. I thought my strength and hope in the Lord had perished before the memory of God's past kindness restores it. Barely. Uh, the book of Lamentations would be read softly at first. The volume on the reader's voice, voice would build to a climax, which is sung aloud by the entire congregation. Turn us to you, O Lord, and we will return. Renew our days as of old. This is how it's still celebrated, if you like, how it's remembered uh, today. So it starts back with Abraham, as everything should start back to Abraham, right? If it doesn't start with Abraham, it should start with, uh, with uh, Adam and Eve. And really, maybe it starts with Adam and Eve, because my take on the sin in the garden was the sin 
of idolatry. Adam and Eve replaced God with themselves. And that's idolatry. In its purest sense, though later on it look, takes on a slightly different view. But we'll, we'll start with Abraham. What happens in, with Abraham? Well, God has a covenant with Abraham and tells him that, his, that he's going to be blessed with many generations, but they will end up in captivity or in slavery for a certain number of years, and then they will come out and he will give them the land. So through this covenant with Israel, uh, the first promise is made. His, inheritance, his descendants would inherit the land of Canaan. After the exodus from slavery, God renewed the covenant he made with Abraham and through Moses made a covenant with Israel that gave them the law. Now Moses reminded the Israelites that they would have God's favor if they followed the law. However, if they abandoned God for idols, God would punish them. And so let's turn to Deuteronomy 28 real quickly. Or not so quickly. Um, the Joshua is uh, getting ready to secede Moses. Moses is making his last statements to the people of Israel. And we find in the 28th chapter, I get turned there, that God, first of all, tells him, Moses says, um, if you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully follow all his commands I give you today, the Lord your God will see you high above all the nations on the earth. All these blessings will come on you and accompany you if you obey the Lord your God. You'll be blessed in the city and blessed in the country. The fruit of your womb will be blessed and the crops of your land and the young of your livestock, the calves of your herd and the lambs of your flock. Your baskets and your kneading trough will be blessed. You will be blessed when you come in and blessed when you go out. The Lord will grant that the enemies who rise up against you will be defeated before you. They will come at you from one direction, but flee in seven. And then he goes on in verse 15. However, if you do not obey the Lord your God and do not carefully follow all his commands and decrees I'm giving you today, all these curses will come and take and overtake you. You'll be cursed in the city, cursed in the country. Your basket and eating trough will be cursed. The fruit of your room will be cursed. The crops in your land and the calves and the lambs of your flocks. You will be cursed when you come in, cursed when you go out. The Lord will send you curses, confusion, rebuke in everything you put your hands to. He goes on further on down. Um, let me see if I'm... 
and continues on to say that if you don't be careful to not to see to go after idolatry you do that and i will uh and i will bring these curses on you so we go further on down the line and, um the king the kingdom is is uh started david is uh lays out the the uh the, the temple, Solomon builds the temple. Jerusalem becomes the capital. Jerusalem is the, the pride and joy of, of, uh, of the Jews. The temple is magnificent. And yet, despite all the warnings of the prophets and the priests and the kings and the people, of Israel continued to be idolatrous. We found them starting out very quickly um, in uh, in Judges. I think that the end of the last few chapters of Judges are are very interesting. Judges, you know, it's, it's a it's a seesaw of remember God and He brings a judge to save you. Then you forget Him and He brings an enemy to to uh, keep you captive. Uh, the last two, I think it's two chapters, I can't remember now, um, are almost like appendices to it. And they base, and they have a couple of incidents to occur, that occur. One is the, uh, the, uh, the idol that's built in the, up in Dan. But there's a statement in there that is, keeps being said. They had no king in those days. And everyone did as they saw as they saw fit. Idolatry came in to Israel and took firm root, and never was able really to be taken out. Solomon added to it with his wives and his building building temples for their their gods in place of the gods of uh, the God of Israel. But God is patient. God is kind. God is forgiving and graceful. However, it's not infinite. And we find in the prophets later on as the kings fluctuated between evil and good, just as we saw the people in Judges between evil and good, eventually it just got to where there wasn't there was no hope for them. And in Jeremiah, we're told that uh, he is going to come and destroy the temple. And let's turn to Jeremiah, 7th chapter. If I can see. There was a feeling among the people that God would never do the things that Jeremiah is telling him is going to happen because we have the temple. We have the city of Jerusalem. And so Jeremiah is told by the Lord, stand at the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim this message. Hear the word of the Lord, all you people of Judah who come through these gates to worship the Lord. 
This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Reform your way and your actions, and I will let you live in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words and say, This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. If you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, if you do not oppress the foreigner, the fatherless, the widow, the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, and do not follow other gods uh, to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place, in the land that I gave your ancestors forever and ever. But look, you are trusting in deceitful and deceptive words that are worthless. Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal and other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which bears my name, and say, we are safe. Safe to do all these detestable things? Has this house, which bears my name, become a den of robbers to you? But I've been watching, declares the Lord. Go now to the place in Shiloh where I first made a dwelling for my name and see what I did because of the wickedness of the people of Israel. What happened in Shiloh? Where the ark was taken? Yeah, the ark was there at one time. And the tent of meeting was there at one time. It was destroyed. While you were doing all these things, declares the Lord, I spoke to you again and again, but you did not listen. I called to you, but you never, but you did not answer. Therefore, what I did to Shiloh, I will do. I will now do in the house that bears my name, the temple you trust in, the place I gave to you, and your ancestors. I will thrust you from my presence just as I did your fellow Israelites in Ephraim. God finally was coming to the end of his patience. He was not going to continue on forever. And he raised up his servant. Uh, what was the servant's name again? Nebuchadnezzar. Ah, yes, his servant. Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon to do this work. And after 500 years, Babylon lay siege to the city. And in the fourth month of the second year of the siege, so for two years, almost two years, nothing went in and out of Jerusalem except for a few people who, were, who gave up and went out to the Babylonians to be taken into captivity. Two years, no food, nothing coming in. Uh, Babylon then breached the walls of Jerusalem and destroyed it. A month later, Nebuzaradan, I guess that's how it's, Bazaradan, uh, he's a Babylonian commander or general, uh, at Nebuchadnezzar's uh, uh, command, burned the temple, the palaces, 
all the great important buildings in Jerusalem, and the walls were torn of Jerusalem were were destroyed down to rubble. Well, the writer of Lamentations wrote these poems reflecting on what happened. So you cannot expect the poems to be cheerful. Uh, you can expect the the poems to be raw in the emotions that are expressed. You can expect to see anger because there was nothing but pain and confusion with the people. Why was there pain? Why would there be pain? Why would they be in pain? They lost everything. They lost everything. Everything was gone. Uh, people were starving in the streets. <coughs> Anger, pain, everything is gone. Why would God allow this? Why would God allow this? That question is going to be on their minds, on their hearts, and expressed in these lamentations. Why? This will be on the test. Yes, this will be on the test. So why will God? Allow, why did God allow this? And in some, and in some of them, we find that that not only did God allow it, said that God did it. It wasn't just allowing it. Yeah, He brought the Babylon, Babylonian army there, but He directed the destruction. It was at His beckoning, at His. Uh, prompting. Yes, Eddie. So, when I see that, I don't see anywhere in the Bible where it says, and then God stopped doing things like that. No. So, as you watch world events today, and you see evil rulers carrying out wicked wars and terrible things, is that just <clears throat> random evil people doing things? Or is God, is he? He's not, he hasn't told me, but is he at work? to break a people, to punish a people, and is he using pagan evil rulers and armies to do that? I, I believe it's very likely that he is and he will and yeah. he has. He's I, done that in the past. Yeah. What we don't have is any prophets right, right. inspired by the Spirit coming and telling us why this is all happening. Um, do we need him? Betty? Do we need him? Well, we've got all this already that tells us what happens if we do wrong. Yes, we read this, we know what's, what happens, what it's like when God's wrath is unleashed. So it's not, not pretty. It's not a beautiful sight. Uh, and, and I'll just, you know, imagine how it felt to for the first verse of the first lamentation how deserted lies the city once so full of people how like a widow is she who once was great among the nations she who was queen among the provinces has now become a slave why 
Confusion. Now, this is one that I think is important for all of us to recognize, the confusion that the people would have. Why would be they confused? What were the prophets telling them? What were the priests telling them all the way up to the day when the wall was breached? God's not going to allow this to happen. And then suddenly they realize all that was a lie. God is going to let it happen. As God is ready to take his revenge, you might say. He's ready to unleash his wrath through the Babylonians. God, have you forsaken us? Anyone ever feel that way? Like, God, have you forsaken us? Have you just given up us on, on us completely? Are we that bad that you've given up on us completely? They already know God's anger, or they should. I mean, he kicks Adam and Eve out. Noah, well, they both. Yeah. <coughs> Sodom and Gomorrah. And we've got all these examples. I mean, they're wandering in the desert for 40 years. Because, you know, and even when they're wandering in the desert, what, 27,000 fell in one day? All this stuff is happening. I mean, they, they have plenty of examples to know that God will only take so much and then so did they believe in God? Were those, had they gone so far in their idolatry that the God that they worshipped in the temple was not real to them? You were talking about their confusion about everything. You know, they, God's not the author of confusion. And we know that. So we have to remember that sin is... And the devil mm -hmm. has a big part in things, too. So <clears throat> what do we allow ourselves to believe? We want to stay on the side of right and wrong. What side are you choosing? You know, are you going to choose? The, obviously, they didn't choose. <clears throat> God's telling them one thing, and they're choosing another. So where did the confusion come from? Well, because they were being told that the prophet that's pronouncing all of this right. is a liar. Yeah. Chose. And God keep tell, kept telling them, and not just, by the way, not just in Jerusalem, but also in the captivity in Babylon, the ones that are already there were telling them, these are lies. This is go what's going to happen. And it's because of your sin. It did. But what's amazing to me is a couple hundred years earlier, God sent Jonah to Nineveh, capital of Assyria. Mm -hmm. He was basically the Jeremiah of that time. And the Assyrians, not God's people, listened. And repented. And repented. And he did just... people wouldn't repent when he sent the prophets. Yeah. Well, I mean, it... it it's understandable. We're God's people. He has chosen us and he's told us he's going to bless us. They neglected the other half of the blessings. You know, he had, uh, it, it must have been an interesting sight. On Mount Ebal, we have the 
curses coming down if you for, if you leave us and uh, and on the other side we have the blessings coming down and and Moses reminding them that if you turn from God he's going to turn from you and the blessings that he's promised will be curses and that's what they did uh, above all there is uh, found in these five poems as I said raw emotions of the people confessions of guilt uh, anger at God for doing this uh, does God have a problem hearing our anger do we have a choice when we're angry with God, does he know it? If we don't tell him, we can keep it secret from him, right? <laughs> and so another thing you're seeing here, these are this, the authors are showing the people's anger toward God. Uh, and so we're, we're angry with God is okay is some of what it's saying. But remember who's God. Remember who isn't God. You're angry at God? Well, maybe you need to think about why this is happening. Uh, we see the degradation of the people, the scenes of starvation and death. There's very little hope that's held out in the Lamentations, except and we'll get to it later, but we'll read it anyway. Um, chapter, uh, verse, the third lamentation, you get it read, and everybody's very familiar with this, uh, starting the 22nd verse, uh, going through the 27th. Uh, because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassion never fails. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion. Therefore, I will wait for him. The Lord is good to those whose hope is in him, to the one who seeks him. It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man to bear the yoke while he is long, young. That's about the only high point you might say emotionally, that we see in this, in these books, in this book, in these poems. So don't expect to be cheered up too much, but expect to find out what God's anger can is really like. We do not want God's wrath. And whether it's now and today, or whether it's in the future, at the, end, at the end of time, we don't want God's wrath. We want God's pleasure. So, the poems themselves, uh, as I said, there's five of them. They're acrostics for the first, second, third, and fourth. And the fifth is not. It's just a straight poem. But, interestingly enough, even though it's, a, it's, a, it's not an acrostic poem, it's still a 22-verse poem. 
And the acrostic ones, it's either the first one, two, and four are 22 verses long. Verse uh, Lamentation 3 is a triple acrostic. It's each letter is three verses. So you have three verses, each beginning with the same letter. Very, very skilled writing to uh, to come up with this. So it's not a it, it's not a uh, uh, a normal run of the mill person. This is a probably a scribe or a priest or someone like Jeremiah who was writing these. Um, the order that they come in is interesting. Um, when we write a book or write anything, what is our default mode? To do it chronologically or just as <laughs> random thoughts come up or what? If I were to write a history, say a gospel, take a look at the gospel writers. They had a set of material, and they put it in sort of chronological order. But if you go to one, from one to another, you see things moved around a little bit to suit the, uh, the author's need. The material is all there, but it's not necessarily chronological. That's Chronological writing is relatively new. It's only in the last five, six hundred years that really people wrote stuff chronologically. If you had something you wanted to write, you'd get your main points out, but they wouldn't necessarily fall in chronological order. Uh, we find in the Book of Lamentations, it's laid out not necessarily chronological, in a chronological way. Um, the first one, when we read it, has all the appearances of after the dust is settling. And you have a person just, uh, as I would say it, looking over the city. The dust is settled. It's all over. And here's the summary. The second one is, concerns itself with the breaching of the, of, the, uh, of the walls. The temple is still there, it appears. The third one we'll come back to later, because it's different. The fourth one appears to be after the raising of the, of the city. When the temple is destroyed, the palaces are destroyed. Uh, the fifth one looks like a cry of anguish, anger, and Lord, are you going to are you going to forget us forever? Uh, the it ends, and I think I've said this once before. It ends very much on a high note. Uh, Restore us to yourself, Lord that we may return, renew our days as of old, unless you have utterly rejected us and are more angry with us beyond measure. The third one appears to, is different. As I said, it's a triple acrostic. Uh, 
So it's 66 verses instead of 22. And it has a little bit of hope in it, but it's more personal. As though the the, the individual who is writing it uh, is not talking about the people in general, but he's lamenting for himself what he's seen. That's one of the strong points in my mind for assigning Jeremiah the authorship of these. If they were all written by one man, then Jeremiah fits the third lamentation. And I can't finish off without jumping into the fact that I'm really a mathematician. And as a mathematician, we like to see symmetry. We like to see structure. We like to see reasons why things are in certain orders and, and done the way they are. And if you look at the, and if you look at the, uh, yeah, I know people are groaning already, but it's so short. If you look at them, you've got 22 verses, 22 verses, 66, 22, 22. It's a beautiful pattern. It's a beautiful pattern. As much as the acrostic patterns are interesting, it's a beautiful pattern for, of the way the book is laid out. Now, whether that's the whether they were all written at one time, um, that's probably correct. If they were all written by the same person, maybe. But when they were laid out, it's just a beautiful pattern. And the pattern would be the end, the two parts of destruction, the lament, and then the final lament, and then the personal lament right in the middle. And it fits very nicely. It's beautifully written, beautifully laid out. So, um, questions. Why do we need these poems? Why do we need to understand gut-wrenching pain. History can repeat itself. Okay, it repeats itself. Has anyone ever had that kind of pain? Just sort of gut-wrenching pain where everything you built your foundations on is shaken and you cry out to God, why am I in this pain? Why is this happening to me? Why do we need these? Paul said in 2 Corinthians, the first chapter, that he had all of these calamities despaired of life itself to teach him to rely on God rather than himself to rely on God who raises the dead. He got to the end of his rope and he thought it was, he was going to die. He couldn't solve it. And he said, says in verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 8 or 9, I learned that I need to rely on God.
Mm-hmm. And that, that was his bottom line. I think we learned God keeps his word. Yeah, God keeps his word. Both he read that stuff in Deuteronomy. Sure enough. He kept his word. He keeps his word elsewhere. I mean, in the end, uh, we had to learn that painful lesson that when we sin, there is a cost. And the cost will leave us scarred forever in most cases. And these poems help us to see how a nation suffered and how a nation went into mourning. Keith. These people took pride in the temple and the security of the temple. Mm -hmm. And I think we've talked before about what I believe to be the central theme of the Bible. That's the relationship. And it's mentioned many times, I shall be their God, and they shall be a people to me. And that, when you see that, uh, I, I shall be your God. He's not their God. That's all the way through the Bible. And you shall be my people in the future. He wants that relationship, and he will do anything. But they took pride in the temple. And when that temple was gone, when it was rebuilt, it said the old men cried. Mm-hmm. Because it wasn't like it was before. It wasn't the there wasn't beautiful. a cloud in the temple to show his presence there. They took pride because they had they thought they had God on their side. But I think we'll see that in the future he promises again to be their God. Any other comments about that? Also, it also shows us in the midst of gut-wrenching pain, there's a glimmer of hope and a promise of God that we hold on to. I mentioned the end of the fifth lamentation work, which is not the most hopeful, but what did it say? Who was, in, who was the one that they had to rely on to answer that, to answer them? Unless you, God, unless you have utterly rejected us, we know that you're going to restore us. You will restore us unless you have totally rejected us. And God did not. He, had, he continued on with his covenant relationship after the, after the captivity. Yes, Keith. Another terrible word in the Bible, when you see it, is depart. Mm. <laughs> because there are times that God departs from his people. Yeah. And he did. This is, this is one where he basically is showing them, this is what life is going to be like if you don't have me. If I'm not here to protect you, this is what's going to happen to you. You're not a major nation. You're not a major power. You're only protected because I'm protecting you. And, and yeah, you don't want to have God depart from you.
something that it's a lesson we need to learn for ourselves. You know, I also think uh, I heard it said Jeremiah preached all of his life but never had a convert. I mean, except for Baruch, you know, that was missing. But it, it does say as he is lamenting all of this, great is thy faithfulness. He never gave up. You know, in such a discouraging ministry that he just kept on faithfully saying, please listen to me, please listen. And yet, uh, you know, the destruction, everything fell apart. But great is thy faithfulness. He never gave up on God. No, he didn't give up. Uh, Jeremiah never gave up on God. He did ask God, please, I'm tired of this. I don't want to be a prophet anymore. I don't blame him. Uh, the only good thing that can happen to a prophet is he doesn't die a violent death. But he never gave up on God. And even though he knew what was going to happen, and that's why the, the third one I think is very important, even though he knew what was going to happen, still to watch it and see it unfold, and the pain that you would feel as you see what you had been telling them over and over and over again and again and again, and they wouldn't listen, and now I have to live through this. Um, it's it, the the books, the the poems in this book are are deeply painful. Uh, venting, uh, but they're healthy, and the spirit wants us to know them. Yeah. Yes, Benita. So after in captivity, so get, tell me if I'm wrong, but through this, you then have Daniel and Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. <laughs> so I see these creating great part of great men of faith. Oh yes. Captivity. So I, I would have to think that what he was teaching was having a huge impact. Yeah. We just see it in later books, in the captivity, not during that, that period. Yeah, during the captivity, they, they, a couple of things happened. Uh, we see the Daniels. We see the, uh, some of these boys or, that were brought over there and some of the men that were brought over there, the the prophecies that they have, that they were, how close they were to God and how they realized that God was the only thing that's important. And the other one, of course, is that Judaism never really slipped into idolatry after that, not the way it was before. Though they didn't really, I don't know how uh, they whether they learned or not, because the second temple was destroyed as well. Um, and I don't know, would you consider it the second or third? Uh, the, uh, the temple built by uh, in Ezra and Nehemiah, that temple uh, was essentially dismantled and built back up in more splendor by Herod. So, uh, but the temple was destroyed twice. And this time, God made sure that they wouldn't build a temple again. 
uh, it had, and it's altered Judaism for for the last two thousand years, uh, and probably for till the end of time. Um, yeah, and, I, think, I think there's a powerful lesson here that for people in their capital city who've lost everything and could never imagine that a foreign nation that God used to punish them. Mm-hmm. Could, could that happen to us in our nation? We can't imagine in a million years this would be our story. Why is it here? Perhaps it might, could be our story. And, and God may do, do that as well for us. Uh, I, I'm of the opinion that uh, that we aren't a special people to God uh, in as, as the Jews were. But we're a special people of God. Christians are special people of God because they are the people of God. Uh, and if we don't have a revival yeah. of our faith, then we may be punished and it won't be pretty. And are there prophets in our nation in our day who will proclaim the truth regardless of what is popular and stand for what's right? I haven't heard any. There may be some, and I just haven't noticed. There are uh, there are some very strong godly men leading very strong godly congregations. Uh, and uh, whether I'd want to make them prophets of God, I don't know. Probably Probably in the broader sense they are. They're bringing the message that God has for us at this time. But we're out of time by the speaking of time. And uh, next week we will uh, do lament- the first lamentation. Uh, I will try to read it aloud because in reality uh, that's the best way to best way to present these is to hear the pain. And I'll try to to do the best I can to read to read it. Number three, I won't do that. We'll just go through that text. So uh, I encourage you to read all of them carefully, two or three times. Try to try to understand the depth of the pain and understand what the wrath of God is. Thanks. See you next week. Hey, I'm Eddie White, the Senior Minister for the Eastside Church of Christ. Sure want to thank you for joining us today on our podcast. I hope today's message was indeed a blessing to you. I'd like to invite you to browse our website at eastsidesprings.com to get more information or to contact us. And as always, we indeed welcome you to join us for our worship service in Colorado Springs as we seek to live out Jesus' mission of making disciples of all nations.